So before we get into the meat of our study today, I want to just share with you just a couple of notes about the passage that I just read, John 10, 19 to 29. First, the feast that is mentioned, the Feast of Dedication, was not one instituted in the Old Testament. The feast that is mentioned, the Feast of Dedication in verse 22, is not one that was instituted in the Old Testament. Rather, it was a feast that the Jews themselves instituted after Judas Maccabeus led a revolt against the Greek powers that had taken over Jerusalem in 165 BC. Antiochus Epiphanes had sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem, which obviously was very blasphemous and desecrated the temple of Yahweh. And when Maccabeus and his troops recovered control over the temple, the Jews instituted the Feast of Dedication to commemorate the recovery and the rededication of the temple to the true and pure worship of Yahweh. Second, the note in verse 22 that it was winter is most likely just a timestamp indicating the passage of time since the Feast of Booths, which was mentioned in chapter 7, and it also sets the present story in the chronological context leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, which is going to happen at the Passover feast in springtime. And so John is helping us understand the sequence of events. However, as John often does, he may have intended this statement also to have a double meaning. Not only telling us what time of year it was, but how cold and chilly Jesus' relationship with the Jewish authorities was becoming. So now with those two notes in mind, let's move on to the meat of our study. And I want to state up front that much of the material that we will cover today is by way of reminder. And so not everything, not everything that we're going to cover today is new, so to speak, but we're going to overlap with some material that we've already covered, as indicated by the word again in verse 19. So even John here is acknowledging that he's going to tell us uh, about some events which are similar to some events which have already transpired. And therefore, there's going to be some overlap in terms of the meaning of the events. Since the Holy Spirit has seen fit to inspire John to return to some of the same themes over and over again for emphasis, then we're just going to embrace that approach as we make our way through John and return to the same themes as they come up, that John returns to over and over again for emphasis. So let's begin then with some review. As was the case in John 6.30 and John 6.42, the problem of unbelief in this passage is not presented to us as stemming from a lack of evidence, but rather from a natural, inherent opposition to God, which is latent in the hearts of unbelievers. So in John chapter 6 and verse 30, they said to Jesus, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now remember, this was just after the feeding of the 5,000. So you can see really that that kind of question is just an excuse. That kind of question is really just a question to justify predetermined unbelief. 
It's not as if Jesus hasn't done any convincing sign as yet. The evidence is there, but the people still keep pretending there's not enough evidence. What sign do you do? Well, how about yesterday when I fed 5,000 people miraculously? Or John 6, 42. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Oh, this is an unsolvable mystery. It's, there's not enough evidence here. We can't understand this. Well, if they would familiarize themselves with the Old Testament, they would understand, uh, or at least it would be possible for them to understand something of the unusual circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth and where he came from and his origins, thus that he is both the offspring of the virgin's womb, as we so often sing, as well as the Son of God. So these are examples of the people pretending that it's just evidence-based. They really are just neutral examiners of evidence. And wherever the evidence leads, that's where they're going to go. This is the way that the people present themselves over and over again in John's Gospel. And so they do here in John chapter 10. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. They're posing themselves here as sincere seekers who are willing to be convinced, willing to be persuaded by evidence. And if Jesus will just give them enough evidence, sufficient evidence, if Jesus will just stop keeping them in suspense, the problem of unbelief is not them. The problem of unbelief is Jesus. This is what's going on here as they ask Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Here the unbelievers accuse Jesus of lacking clarity, pretending, as Matthew Henry says, only to doubt. Pretending only to doubt. When the fact of the matter is not so much that it is intellectually impossible for them to believe. Rather, the situation is that they will not believe, no matter how much evidence is put before them. The unbelief of these people is presented to us in this passage not as stemming from a lack of evidence, but rather as stemming from a natural, inherent opposition to God, which is latent in the hearts of these unbelievers. Jesus responds to their question about whether or not he is the Messiah, saying, I told you. He says, I told you. I told you, and you do not believe. The sense of this is, I already told you. I am not keeping you in suspense. I told you, and you do not believe. I told you. Now, of course, Jesus has not yet publicly said that he was the Messiah in plain terms. He has not told them plainly in public. He, remember with the woman at the well in Samaria, she said, when the Messiah comes, he will teach us these things. And he said, I who speak to you am he. So he told her privately, but he's not yet publicly come out and said it. And the reason for this is, as D.A. Carson puts it, the term Messiah, or its Greek equivalent, Christ, 
had too many political and military connotations in first century Palestine. And thus, as Leon Morris notes, in view of the erroneous ideas of messiahship held by his questioners, to answer either yes or no would have been misleading. So if Jesus said, no, I'm not the messiah, well, of course, that would be misleading because he was the messiah. But if Jesus just said plainly, yes, I am the Messiah, that would also be misleading because of the erroneous views that they held about what the implications of the Messiah are, or the arrival of the Christ are. He was not a political and military Messiah. And that's what they were expecting, and so he didn't want to plainly state yes uh, and implicitly condone the categories of thought that they were using. So Jesus isn't suggesting, when he says, I told you, he isn't suggesting that he said it so plainly. But he's pointing out rather, and again, if I may quote D.A. Carson, that all of his ministry, all of his ministry, both words and deeds, pointed in one direction. And in that sense, he had told them. Look, Jesus is teaching the teachers of Israel. Nicodemus comes to him and Jesus rebukes him. Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? And Jesus instructs him. Jesus heals. Jesus feeds 5,000. Jesus says, I am the true bread that has come down from heaven. Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus has said, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have everlasting life. Whoever believes will not perish, but have everlasting life. Has Jesus been unclear thus far in John? The answer is no. Jesus has been absolutely clear. Strategically, wisely, prudently, he hasn't condoned their categories of thought by framing himself as a Messiah, as they perceived the Messiah to be. But Jesus has not been unclear that he is here to save, that he is here to rescue, that he has come down from heaven, that he has been sent by the Father. How many times have we seen that? Jesus has not been unclear that he has life in himself, that he is the shepherd of the sheep, that he has authority to lay down his life for the sheep and to take it up again. Jesus has not been unclear. I told you, therefore, he says. The problem then, which had these people stuck in unbelief, was not insufficient clarity, but hardness of heart. And this is the way that it is with unbelievers. This is the way it is Pardon me, this is the way it was with you, Christian. Before you came to Christ Jesus, all the times you heard the gospel and did not believe, it was not because you were so smart. It was not because you were so enlightened. It was not because the evidence wasn't there and you were so neutral and so unbiased that you just evaluated the evidence without any bias and concluded 
that there was no compelling reason to believe in Jesus. That is not what had you in unbelief. There are answers to the questions that unbelievers raise, no matter how sophisticated they are. There are plausible answers to the questions that unbelievers raise. Sure, there are some things we don't know, and things we're going to wrestle with, and things we're going to struggle with. But it is far more plausible to believe in Jesus than not, when all the evidence is considered. Again, I'll remind you of that uh, story of uh, R.C. Sproul, when he was reading an essay from a Nobel Peace Prize winner. And the essay argued that something can't come just instantly from nothing. And Sproul said, oh, this is great. This is good to read this in a mainstream scientific magazine. How, how irrational that something could instantly come from nothing. I'm glad to see this in print. And so Sproul kept reading. And the man went on to argue, it's so illogical to think that something could instantly come from nothing. Therefore, obviously, it had to gradually come from nothing. And, I mean, obviously in more sophisticated words, but Sproul was making the point that slowing down the process from which, uh, in which something comes from nothing doesn't help make it more rational. We find that the most sufficient plausible answer to the question of origins comes to us in the Holy Scriptures. In the beginning, God. And as we go through our lives, our questions become bigger and deeper and more complex and more nuanced. But if we return over and over again to what the Bible teaches us about the way the world is and why things are the way that they are and how things work, and when we consider epistemological questions, how we know what we know, in, within the framework of epistemology that the Bible gives us, we find that actually the world makes sense. This doesn't mean that we only read the Bible. It doesn't mean that we don't read science textbooks. It doesn't mean that we don't read encyclopedias. It doesn't mean that we find secular research suspect. It simply means that when science is done well and theology is done well, there's harmony. And that if we are doing good science, we find that there's nothing implausible whatsoever about what the Bible teaches us, about God and about us and about the world that we live in. And it's only when we're doing bad science like gradual coming of something from nothing, that we find conflict and disharmony. Or when we're doing bad theology, as when the church uh, centuries ago said that the sun revolved around the earth because we are the center of the universe. We are the apple of God's eye. And so the theologians said, well, this is a good and necessary consequence. The sun must therefore revolve around the earth. And the scientists who were doing good science said, no, it's not the case. So there may be bad theology, which brings theology into conflict with science, 
or there may be bad science, which brings science into conflict with theology. But when we do good theology and when we do good science, the world makes sense. And the deeper we look and the more carefully we look and the more sincerely and impartially that we look, the more we find that there is compelling evidence to adopt a Christian worldview, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what makes sense of it all. The problem then for the unbelieving world, <clears throat> once people have heard explanations, once people have asked their questions and received credible answers, the reason at the bottom then, after all of that is said and done, why they won't believe is not because the evidence isn't there. It's not because they're just too enlightened or too wise or too smart to believe such fairy tales. Rather, the reason is this natural inclination away from God, which is latent in our hearts, in our natural state, because of Adam's fall into sin. You see, when Cain and Abel and Seth and the rest of Adam and Eve's children were born, they weren't born into the innocency in which Adam and Eve first stood. They were born already corrupt, already inclined away from God as a genetic disease is passed down generation to generation. I'm not saying that sin runs in our genes. I don't know exactly how it's passed down. I, I tend to think covenantally as opposed to physiologically. But the point is, at least in a way analogous to how a hereditary disease is passed, so sin is passed to the descendants of Adam. And everyone who has been born since that first generation of Adam and Eve, since Adam's sin, all are born not only guilty, but also corrupt. And it is this natural disinclination toward God which keeps us in unbelief. And it keeps us raising objections like the people in the text raise here toward Jesus. How long will you, God, keep us in suspense? How long will you, Jesus, keep us in suspense? What sign do you do? What work do you perform that we may see it and believe you? <coughs> it is this natural inclination away from God that keeps us raising questions and doubts as pretexts for our hardened unbelief. <coughs> Look at verse 26. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Note that well. He doesn't say you are not among my sheep because you do not believe. Isn't that what you're usually told? You are not among my sheep because you do not believe. Look at what it says here. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. The implication here is that it is the nature of not being a sheep which leads to unbelief. We need the grace of God to make us sheep in order that we might believe. John chapter 3, this is by way of review, in verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
doesn't, don't so many tell you that you need to see the kingdom of God and believe in order to be born again? Isn't that what you most often hear? If you want to be born again, see the kingdom of God and believe. Believe in Jesus and then you will be born again. What does it say here? It's opposite. Unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God, let alone believe. John chapter 6 and verse 44. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Do you see that there has to be this prior work of God in order that we might believe? We see it again in John chapter 10 and verse 26. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. This is going to become clearer as we move forward. But so far what we've covered again, I admit, is repetitive as we've already examined this concept in our study of John's gospel so far. As we've examined passages like that in John chapter 3 and in John chapter 6 that I just mentioned. But if the Spirit has seen fit to drill this concept into our heads via repetition, then let us submit to the form of His revelation and circle back around to it as often as He does and in the same proportion. God wants to make it clear to us through John's Gospel. Unbelief is not an intellectual problem at the bottom of it. Unbelief is a moral problem. Unbelievers, yes, we can try to answer their questions and give sufficient answers and sufficient evidences and so on and so forth, but don't fall prey to the idea that the person you're talking to is neutral. And don't let them converse with you under that assumption. Press the point that the Bible presses over and over again. That at the bottom, unbelief is not an intellectual problem, but a moral one. Unbelievers are not neutral examiners of data, but rather are hard-hearted rebels toward God. So was I. So were you. Don't be haughty about it. Don't be proud. Don't be condescending. But press it. This is what the Bible tells us. It is only when we begin to see ourselves this way, as wretches, that we can then repent, believe, and pivot to sing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. What is it? Were you a wretch? Or were you a neutral, rational person? who was ready to believe, who wasn't so bad. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I was following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. I was carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and I would not believe. But amazing grace intervened and saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found by amazing grace. I once was blind, but now I see by amazing grace. This is what we need. All of our questions 
and objections may be answered plausibly, sufficiently. If we cling to them in the face of those answers, it's not because there's not enough evidence. We're just continuing to put these things forward as pretexts for our unbelief. Pretending, as Matthew Henry says, only to doubt. Now on to some new material. Jesus goes on to teach about the security of believers. Remember that the sheep are those given by the Father to the Son. We've seen that already from previous passages, but here it is again. In John chapter 10 and verse 29, look at it. The sheep are those given to the Son by the Father. And they come not because they're better, wiser, smarter, or inherently more morally upright than those around them, but because the Father draws them. According to John chapter 6 and verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Well, perhaps the Father draws everybody. And Jesus is simply just making a statement that yes, there is, need, there is a need of provenient grace. And provenient grace has been extended to all. Well, what does it say a few verses prior? John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And so that option is excluded. The Father needs to draw, and all that the Father draws come. It is because the Father has drawn. The Father has given sheep to the Son and drawn them to faith in the Son. It is for this reason and for this reason alone that Jesus can say in John 10 verse 27, My sheep hear my voice. And they follow me. Why? Because they were neutral examiners of data? No. Because the Father has drawn them. Because they have been born again. It is for that reason. Because they are sheep, therefore they believe. That's what it says in John chapter 10 and verse 26. That is the opposite implication of John chapter 10 and verse 26. Those who are not sheep will not believe. Those who are sheep will. <clears throat> Therefore, it is by grace alone that we are given the new birth and that we see the kingdom of God and that we hear the shepherd's voice. Having been given by the Father to the Son, we have been drawn to faith in the Son, we've been given the new birth, we believe because we are sheep, it is by grace alone that we are believers, that we have come in the first place to hear the shepherd's voice, and that we have come to follow him. And this is the dominant theme of John 10, 28 and 29. It is by the same grace that we are kept. It is by that same grace that we are kept. In 1 Peter, we read that there is an inheritance kept in heaven for us, 
And just one verse after reading that, we read that we are being kept for the inheritance. There are many dangers, toils, and snares in this world. But grace will lead us home. This is what is meant by no one will snatch them out of my hand in verse 28. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand in verse 29. There are many dangers, toils, and snares in this world. There is false teaching, heresy, mixed up ideas rampant in this world. And don't for a second think that Christians don't imbibe some of them. Some of us, including myself, are mixed up about this thing or that thing or whatever. But look, the Holy Spirit ministers to our heads in such a way that we don't get totally mixed up and abandon Christ Jesus. If you are a sheep, if you have been given by the Father to the Son, if you've been given the new birth, if you've been drawn, you will be kept. The Holy Spirit will minister to your head so that you don't get too mixed up and run away from Christ. <clears throat> there is the danger, the toil, the snare of temptations or fishing hooks, you might say, that Satan uses, which are in this world to draw us away, not by our heads, but by our affections, by our lusts, the desires of the body and the mind, as Ephesians 2 says, in which we used to live carrying out those desires all the time. Don't for a second think that Christians don't deal with remaining corruption and wrong desires. We do. It's a normal part of the Christian experience. But listen, as the Holy Spirit ministers to our heads so that we are not fully and ultimately drawn away from Christ, so the Holy Spirit ministers to our affections, so that we, like the sun and the pigsty in the parable in Luke 15, come to our senses when we've been dabbling in wickedness and foolishness and we say, let me go home to my Father's house. We find ultimately at the bottom more sweetness in Jesus than we find in the world. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit in keeping you. To make the things of earth grow strangely dim. To make sure that our gaze always returns eventually to Jesus. And that we turn our eyes upon Him. That we experience that the pleasures of Egypt are fleeting. And that we embrace then the reproach of Christ, that we make our way through this world, not with our God as our belly, ultimately, but denying ourselves and taking up our cross and continuing to follow our shepherd, Jesus, through this world. The Holy Spirit, who drew in the first place, keeps by ministering to your head so you don't get so mixed up that you leave Christ ministering to your heart so that you're not drawn ultimately and finally away from Christ. And the Holy Spirit ministers also to our bodies such that we are not snatched out of God's hands. Let me explain this one. 
enemies of Christ, enemies of the gospel, often think that by killing us, they can conquer us. But listen here. You don't snatch me out of the Father's hand by killing me. You put me straight into His presence. So the Holy Spirit makes sure that we don't get snatched out of the shepherd's hands by things that affect our heads. And the Holy Spirit makes sure that we don't get snatched out of our shepherd's hands by things that affect our hearts. And the Holy Spirit makes sure that we don't get snatched out of the shepherd's hands by things that affect our bodies, suffering and death. What does Romans 8, 35 to 39 say? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We might put the question a different way. Who will snatch us out of our shepherd's hands? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Because this is our lot in life, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, nothing can pluck you out of the shepherd's hand. No one is able to snatch you out of the Father's hand. Ah, someone might say, it is true that no one can snatch you out of Jesus' hand, but you may jump out. <laughs> this is a common argument from those who believe that you can lose your salvation. Again, let's just go to the text of Scripture for a rebuttal. First, John 10, 28, right here in our passage and many other places, teach us that Jesus' sheep receive eternal life. Well, if it ends, then it is eternal, is it? So first of all, let's just not overcomplicate matters. When we come to Jesus, we are not told that we will receive eternal life, but that we have eternal life. Turn with me back to John chapter 3 and verse 36. What does it say? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. In case that's not clear enough, John chapter 5 and verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So eternal life isn't this thing dangling in front of you. If, if, you don't jump out of the shepherd's hand, is it? You passed from death to life. You passed into eternal life. And if it ends, it's not eternal. Simple as that. It's finite. 
It's temporal. It's a short-lived experience, not eternal. Second, by way of rebuttal, what does the Bible say about the sheep that the Father has given to the Son? Let us remind ourselves who it is that are in the shepherd's hand. Who is it that are in the Father's hand? Verse 29. And by the way, notice that the shepherd's hand and the Father's hand are the same hand. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week as we get into verse 30. I and the Father are one. But note that. Who is it that are in the shepherd's hand? Who is it that are in the Father's hand? It is the sheep. And who are the sheep? They are those given by the Father to the Son. According to verse 29, according to John 6, 37 that we reviewed earlier, it is those given by the Father to the Son, that is the sheep who are in the hand of the shepherd. And they may not be snatched out, but can they jump out though? In John 6, 39, Jesus says that it is the Father's will that he should lose nothing of all that the Father has given him. but raise it up on the last day. This is what we read about the sheep. If we were to synthesize, what does the Gospel of John say about the sheep? It says that they're given by the Father to the Son. It says that they're drawn by the Father to the Son. It says that they will be raised up on the last day. And then not one of them will be lost. So can the sheep jump out? The answer is no. They cannot jump out. Remember that the Spirit ministers to our minds, our heads, and our hearts, our affections. As I talked about a couple of minutes ago. The effect of this is that we don't ultimately want to jump out. Sure, maybe we start to embrace some bad thinking and we waver and we struggle. But as I said, the Holy Spirit makes sure that those false teachers don't snatch us out of the hand of our shepherd. Sure, maybe our affections go after the world's fleeting pleasures a little bit. But remember, the Holy Spirit ministers to our affections so that Satan doesn't hook us with the world's fleeting pleasures and snatch us out of the Father's hand. The other side of that coin is that our heads choose to stay. And our hearts choose to stay. This is the effect of of the Spirit's ministry to us in this way, so that we don't get snatched, is that we actually want to stay. No one comes to Christ in the beginning who doesn't want to. Nobody comes to Jesus running the opposite way and getting pulled in like by like a tractor beam in a sci-fi movie. It doesn't happen. Nobody comes to Christ who doesn't want to. So yes, there's the drawing of the Holy Spirit, but there is the coming of the individual. So it is with the keeping, the staying. The Holy Spirit keeps. The Holy Spirit makes sure that you are not snatched, that nothing separates you from the love of Christ. 
But the other side of that coin is the means, the mechanism by which he does that is by keeping your head and your heart ultimately fixed on Christ. So you don't ultimately want to jump out of Christ's hand. The good news of the gospel involves the promise and the assurance that those who come to Christ will be kept wanting to remain with Christ by the power of the Spirit. We choose to stay like we chose to come in the first place. There's a real choice there, and don't let any uh, hyper-Calvinists tell you otherwise. There's a real choice to be made there in coming to Christ, in staying with Christ. We work this out, we live this out every day. We can't do it apart from God's work in us, but we need to do it. We choose to stay like we chose to come. But as it was grace which drew us in the first place, it is grace that will keep us. Grace will lead us home. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This is precious teaching on the keeping of the sheep by the shepherd. So Christian, press on, knowing that the shepherd will see to it that you get where you're going. He didn't bring you out of Egypt as we've been looking at in our evening sermon, only to let you die in the wilderness. He will get you all the way to the promised land.